This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, Chris Fafalius here. During the wrap of every Chris to Makes a Podcast episode, I'm sure you hear us mention the After Party Podcast, which is the weekly show that we release to members of our supporting cast, which is basically like a Patreon. We've been doing this show for years now, and we've got an enormous back catalog of that show as well, which centers a lot on music and music history. Chris and I both learned a lot and laughed a lot because of the After Party, and for anyone who is a member of the supporting cast, I hope you've done the same. If you're not a member of our supporting cast, I wanted to give you a little taste of what the After Party Podcast is all about today. You're about to hear an episode about the biggest songs of the 1950s, which I found endlessly fascinating because it's hard to imagine some of these songs being the biggest song of a certain year. If you enjoy this episode, you'll get instant access to a giant library of past episodes, plus a new episode every Monday delivered right into your podcast app of choice. All you got to do is head to ChrisDemakes.com and sign up for the supporting cast. For the cost of an apple juice at the Cracker Barrel, you'll not only get a wealth of fun episodes to listen to, but you'll also be supporting Chris to Makes a podcast and allowing us to continue creating it, which we'd love to do for a very long time. Okay, I won't hold you up any longer here. This is the After Party episode titled, The Biggest Songs of the 1950s. Welcome to the Hey everybody, welcome to the After Party, and we're going to take you through the 1950s and the most popular songs of each year. What do we got, Chris? Yeah, it it was really surprising to me. I went year by year through every year of the 1950s to see what the number one song was of that entire year. And Chris, I sent these to you. Let me ask you first, how many of these songs did you actually know? I think like three or four, not many. There's a couple obvious ones that everybody knows, but other than that, I was like, what was going on in the 1950s? There's instrumentals and there's uh, songs I would never dream would be number one songs. Yeah, exactly. No, and you know, you're coming out of the, I guess, the big band era of the 40s. So, you know, I don't even know when was rock and roll first coined. You know, I was going to say with Elvis around, you know, Elvis or Little Richard or something, mid to late 50s. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that. What I learned from this, I really did learn a lot. I learned how much music changed in the 60s. If you're listening to this, if you're like me and don't know a lot about music from the 1950s, I thought I did. I thought this was going to be a bunch of like (laughs) music like the Platters and the Drifters and like these singing groups is what I thought. And I was way off. No, completely eclectic. And, you know, you got to think of, you know, 15 years when we were kids seemed like a long time. It's really not a long time. And, you know, music in the last 20 years 
just hasn't evolved like it did from 1955. Just think of 55, a song we're going to go uh, talk about here in a moment, to 1970. What happened through the 60s? It's incredible. This even emphasized the point of all the ground like the Beatles broke and the yeah. Rolling Stones and bands like that. I, I can't believe how fast music evolved in that time. And uh, people, you're going to see here in this episode. And Chris, do you know what the term rock and roll meant? Um, I actually never really thought of it. I always just kind of thought about those being terms that described the way the drums and guitars sounded or I, something. I guess I always thought along those same lines too. But from what I understand, rock and roll meant to fornicate. You were rocking. Wow. You were rocking and rolling between the sheets, and I think that's why. <laughs> I think that's why there was such a disdain for this type of music. It was looked at, especially 1950s conservative America. They didn't want to hear about this stuff. That's incredible. Those kids in their rock and roll music. That makes it. That makes it so much funnier. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get down to business here. What what's the uh, first number one song in 1950? So the biggest song of 1950 is a song called Goodnight Irene by Gordon Jenkins and the Weavers. I've settled down, now me and my wife are parting, I'm gonna take another stroll downtown, Irene, goodnight, Irene. The one thing I can tell you about this song, I don't think I'd ever heard it before, but I remember as a kid, my dad using that expression, like, good night, Irene, <laughs> like, as if, like, <laughs> that's the end of it, whatever that thing is, you know? Have you? I, that, that's all I knew of this song was that expression. Yeah, good night, Irene. Um, I had never heard this song. I'd never heard of Gordon Jenkins and the Weavers. This song, Chris, is what I would think of, you know, I remember my grandparents using this term, crooner. You know, uh -huh. someone that it's like the, a crooner, someone that's like a, like a Sinatra type delivery. And, you know, this this particular song reminded me of those old black and white shows like the Little Rascals and the Three Stooges. It'd be like the intro music to that. It's just yeah, I also have a star rating on these songs of com okay. completely not offensive. This song is not offensive in any way. It's 1950. I don't think the term rock and roll was coined. Not offensive. Something like I, I think you'd hear on like an old timey TV show. Just easy listening. It's funny you say that, though, about this song, because the actual meaning of this song is something kind of uh, kind of messed up. Uh, I want to tell you real quick, Gordon Jenkins was an arranger, composer, and pianist who was really influential in pop music in like the 1940s and 50s. You know, he went on to work with Johnny Cash, Frank Sinatra, um, Louis Armstrong, Judy Garland, Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday, Harry Nilsson, Peggy Lee, and Ella Fitzgerald. This dude was, he was involved with everybody. And even further in the future, 1966, he won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist for Frank Sinatra's rendition of It Was a Very Good Year. Do you know that song? I do. I do. Yeah. 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 So he went on to do that. And the Weavers who are in this song were a folk music quartet based out of Greenwich Village, New York City. But what's really crazy about this song, it was originally by Lead Belly, 
Lead Belly was an American folk and blues singer notable for his strong vocals and his virtuosity on the 12-string guitar. But why I was saying this song is maybe, it's a little bit crazy, is the lyrics of the song tell the story of the singer's troubled past with his love, Irene, and it expresses his sadness and frustration about it. And several of the lyrics in the verses refer to explicit suicidal fantasies, most famously in the line, sometimes I take a great notion to jump in the river and drown. And what blew my mind about this, Chris, is my favorite novel of all time is Ken Kesey's Sometimes a Great Notion. And I never knew that the inspiration for the title was from that lyric. Huh, I was like, that, whoa, crazy. I've said it before. I love I love learning things on the after party, Chris. One more thing before we move on from this. The Weavers, they were blacklisted uh, during the Red Scare. Members of the group were followed by the FBI, and two of the members were called in to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. <laughs> hmm. so, so there's a lot more to this song. It, it sounds like an inoffensive sort of whatever but there's some there's some darkness to this song for sure yeah on the surface it doesn't seem too uh too offensive but yeah i thought that was a pretty cool song if we move to 1951 the number one song of the year was too young by nat king cole they try to tell us we're too young too young to really be in love They say that love's a word A word we've only heard But can't begin to know the meaning of Again, it's another, it's one of those songs with a bunch of strings. I, I would consider this a, a crooner, someone that's just kind of singing from the heart. Um, yeah, it, this song, this song's a classic, definitely not rock and roll. And, and uh, I don't think this song's offensive on the outside, uh, except for maybe the fact that, that Nat King Cole was African-American, you know, and I, and I, I say that from the time for the time period. And I'd imagine even from reading stories back in the day where, you know, when a lot of black artists would go out and this happened with like Charlie Pride and the country uh, music, they'd go out and play places and he'd show up and they, they figured it was just some white guy walking in, you know, so it was definitely, definitely an interesting time to be a musical artist of color. Hey, this song, I think this song's incredible. Did you know this song was released on Capitol Records? It was catalog number 1449. 1449. I did not know label that. Label mate. Yeah. Your, your, your <laughs> former label mate, Nat King Cole. Uh, for those who don't know, this song was written by Sidney Lipman and Sylvia D. Sylvia D was a lyricist and longtime collaborator of Sidney Lipman. And they got the idea for the song when she told him that her younger brother was getting married and she thought that he was too young. Um, Nat King Cole, of course, is an American singer, jazz pianist, and actor. He recorded over 100 songs that became hits on the pop charts. And as you alluded to as being kind of a groundbreaker, Chris, Nat King Cole was the first African-American man to host an American TV series, The Nat King Cole Show, which debuted on NBC in November of 1956. That's awesome. And, you know, remember that duet that him and his daughter did? She went ahead and put her vocals over one of his tracks. Yep. I believe that might have been the first time something like that was done. 
And forevermore And forevermore That's how you'll stay That's how you'll stay That's why, darling It's incredible That someone so unforgettable Thinks that I am yeah that was cool yeah very cool very cool stuff moving on to 1952 this is where i'm like how is this the number one song of a year not that it's bad or anything but uh blue tango by leroy anderson was the biggest song of the year Yeah, this song is a, a, a three-minute instrumental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you look back, and certainly since then, there have been instrumentals, you know, that have, have been really popular songs. Axel F comes to mind. But sure. um, this song is just, it, it, this is a strange one. Uh, again, I put not offensive on this. It's It almost feels like background music you'd hear at like Universal Studios or something when you're going going into the uh, uh, the, the country western uh, uh, ride or something. I don't know. It, I, I was surprised at this one as well, Chris. Right. Yeah. John Williams described Leroy Anderson as one of the great American masters of light orchestral music. Uh, <laughs> Blue Tango. Blue Tango was actually the first instrumental recording ever to sell one million copies, and. I can name a song by Leroy Anderson. I guarantee you know, Chris. Okay. Uh, his most famous song, even though this was his song that went to number one, is Sleigh Ride. Hey, we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, which, by the way, there are no ad breaks on the after party when you sign up at ChrisDemakes.com. Just saying. But we'll be right back. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, 
ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. And now back to the special sneak preview of the After Party podcast. Leroy Anderson wrote Sleigh Ride. Hmm. Okay. Pretty cool, right? It's awesome. Moving on to 1953, the song from Moulin Rouge by Percy Faith. Call this song, you know. I know, I know Moulin Rouge, but do you remember this song? Uh, it sounded familiar to me when I listened to it. Yeah, I, I have heard it before. I don't know why or how. This is another one I put in the not offensive category. It's got that string thing again that sounds like something that could have been in one of those you know, old timey black and white uh, short uh, TV show films. Um, it's another interesting one, Chris. The song's three minutes and 20 seconds. I thought it was an instrumental, but at the one minute and 36 second mark, the vocals start. Right. <laughs> and interestingly enough about those vocals, first of all, Chris, this song is sometimes known as It's April Again. Um, it appeared in the 1952 film Moulin Rouge, of course. In the film, it's sung by Muriel Smith, who's dubbed in for Zsa Zsa Gabor, who lip synced to Muriel Smith's vocals. But in this version, the vocal was by Felicia Sanders. It was released on Columbia Records. Percy Faith, who you know wrote the song, composed the song, is a Canadian-American band leader, orchestrator, composer, and conductor. He is often credited with popularizing the easy listening and mood music formats. Oh, geez. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. You know, you just mentioned that he's Canadian. How did people think of how much longer it took to communicate? You would have to be in New York City or you'd have to be in in Los Angeles. And that Canadian guy would have to come down. I mean, yeah, there was telephone around. But uh, think about the work that went into getting these musicians together and and doing this. It's it. I can't even imagine. I would imagine Percy probably had to be in the United States. I mean, he's he's Canadian American, which makes me think. Yeah, he's originally from Canada, but now in America. Uh, One more thing I thought was interesting about him is that he was kind of the person that came up with rethinking orchestration techniques because in the 40s, it was very brass dominated. Think about that big band sound with lots of brass. Yeah. Well, in his arrangements, he used lots of large string sections to soften and fill it out instead of like that kind of those brass horns of the 40s. So he was kind of an innovator in that way. Uh, Moving on to 1954. 
We have Little Things Mean a Lot by Kitty Callen was the biggest song of the year. Send me the warmth of a secret smile to show me you haven't forgot for always and ever now and forever little things mean a lot give me your heart when i've lost i hadn't heard this one but what a beautiful voice yeah, it's great. What an amazing, amazing voice. 1954. I, I don't consider this rock and roll. Again, predominant use of the strings here, Chris. It's pretty soft. It's not brassy, as you mentioned a second ago. Uh, not offensive, this song, in any way. And, and again, what a beautiful voice she has. Yeah, this song was written by Edith Lindemann with music by Carl Stutz. And uh, what I thought was strange was that Edith Lindemann was the leisure editor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Stutz was a DJ from Richmond, and they just got together and wrote this song that became a hit for Kitty Callen. Kitty Callen was a popular singer from Philly, whose career spanned from the 1930s to the 1960s. This particular single sold over 2 million copies. 2 million copies back then meant they're they're selling 2 million probably 45s, I guess, that, that's a lot for me to have never heard this song before. <laughs> which is which is amazing because I don't know how many people were in the U.S. Maybe a hundred million back in, in in the fifties. You know, that's mm-hmm. like that's like two percent of the population owned that record. It's incredible. I, one more thing I thought was pretty interesting about Kitty Callen is in 1955, at the top of her career, she lost her voice at the London Palladium, and she stopped singing altogether to audiences for four years and then she started going to places and testing her voice under a fake name in small town venues and then she returned to music and went on to achieve 13 top 10 hits oh man sounds like a crazy had some kind of crazy mental block huh yeah comeback story i mean geez we all lose our voice once in a while maybe not at the london palladium (laughs) yeah i mean i might take four days off but not four years wow yeah Yeah, uh, moving on to 1955, the year that my parents were born. The number one song of the year was Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White by Perez Prado. Another strange one here. Uh, it's it sounds like uh, very Latin elements in this song. Another instrumental. Uh, you got horns, drums. There's strings here. Um, not rock and roll at all. I don't think it's offensive and uh, pretty cool tune though. I had never heard it. Prez Prado was a Cuban band leader, pianist, composer, and arranger who popularized the Mambo in the 1950s, and his big band adaptation of the Mambo proved to be a worldwide success with hits such as Mambo Number no. 5, <laughs> earning him the nickname King of the Mambo, which now we think of as uh, Lou Bega. <laughs> uh, but I would venture to say that we wouldn't have Lou Bega if it wasn't for Perez Prado. Yeah, I, I, I'll i give you that one. And again, what 
we the second instrumental kind of this is a two and a half instrumentals we have here because there's the one song that had vocals halfway through it but uh what was the deal with instrumentals back then dude back in the 50s people were like Man, did you hear that new Instrumento Mambo by Perez Prado? <laughs> that shit is burning up the charts. Yeah, I can't I can't wait to, to, to get to the sock hop and dance to that one. Yeah, I don't know. But finally in 1956, man, things are starting to get like, okay, this makes sense. The number one song of 1956 was Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom. Be so, think it's so lonely, baby. Think it's so lonely. It's so lonely, they could die. Yeah, and this song is on, uh, you know, on the surface, not offensive, but his vocal delivery, the kind of little hiccup things that he does and the oohs and the that stuff parents did not like. Pianos in this song, we got guitars, sounds like brushes on drums for this track. Pretty soft tune, but uh, I consider this song rock and roll. Yes, absolutely. Now it's starting to make sense. Elvis is this iconic personality who has this song you could sing along to. And if if you're a young girl or something, you think he's hot. And if you're a guy, you might want to be him. Or if you're a gay guy, you might also think he's hot. Whatever. Like, he's just attractive to everyone in one way or another. This makes sense to me. Uh, Elvis started crushing it at this point. Don't Be Cruel was actually the number two song of the entire year. Hound Dog was number six. He had five songs in the top 15 songs of the entire year of 1956. Uh, This song, Heartbreak Hotel, was actually written by May Boren Axton and Tommy Durden. But some credit was also given to Elvis on the writing of it. May Boren Axton was known as the Queen Mother of Nashville. And she also went on to work with Reba McIntyre, Willie Nelson, Tanya Tucker, and Blake Shelton. So she was doing this long after she's writing this with Elvis. Um, and the song, once again, alluding to dark things, the song was inspired by a newspaper article about the suicide of a man who jumped from a hotel window. Yeah, and think about how many parents were were you know, cracking vinyl records over their legs. Kids had to hide their records. They were burning their kids' records. You know, this was kind of like punk rock in a sense because it was rebellious. The kids listening to it were rebelling in a lot of ways to the norms of this strict society they were living in. And props to to, to Elvis and, and, and the bands of this era because I don't we wouldn't be where we're at today without them. If this would have stuck with the first five songs here, we'd be uh, we'd be crooning and listening to strings. Yeah, for sure. Putting out <laughs> a lot of instrumental it, records. Yeah, a lot of instrumental mambos. Uh, <laughs> but if it wasn't for Elvis <laughs> and all the people that inspired Elvis and wrote for Elvis, yeah, I, I know there's a little bit of a whitewashing of that history that goes on, but. Uh, 1957, Elvis once again, All Shook Up was the biggest song of the year. Well, my hand is shaking and my knees are weak. I can't seem to stand on my own two feet. Who do you think of when you have such luck? I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this is 
definitely rock and roll piano guitar uh it sounds like time is being kept on like a semi-hollow piece of wood or something here chris like someone's tapping it i don't know exactly what what they what they were using there um love this song and and again it's rebellious and i could see parents just hating this yeah, Elvis, once again, is crushing it this year. He had four of the top 16 songs in 1957. Uh, this song, All Shook Up, was composed by Otis Blackwell, whose other compositions include Great Balls of Fire and Breathless, which were recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis. Otis Blackwell also wrote Don't Be Cruel, obviously All Shook Up, and Return to Sender, and also Fever by Little Willie John. So this guy was a very, very accomplished uh, composer, songwriter. And again, I just want to talk about for a second, like, what was the networking like back then? How, how did you connect the dots to these songwriters? Who Were you walking by someone's house and they had an acoustic on the porch and you're like, hey, you want to write a song today? It's, it's, it's amazing that the amount of work that they got done. I think that it was the people, I mean, I'm kind of basing this off of the... Uh, you know, the the Elvis movie that I recently watched, yeah. which who knows? Who knows, like, what liberties were taken in the story there? But it seems like these people were popular within the scene, be it in Nashville or in, you know, wherever, Memphis. People that were popular within the town that then they could put those songs on the face of Elvis and make them huge national sensations. Yeah, well, they were definitely hanging out at the the, the live venues, the, the bars that were hosting live music. I, I That's probably where most of the networking took place, but it's it's incredible. And you're naming off, and it's, it's really no different than today. You're naming off all these artists that wrote songs for other artists. It's, it, it's you know, kind of kind of connecting the dots. It's really cool. So moving on to 1958, I don't know if this was a, <laughs> a reaction to Elvis or something, but... A song that's not even sung in English was the biggest song of the year. It was Valere Nel Blue de Pinto de Blue by Domenico Madungo, <laughs> which the, the song title means In the Blue Painted Blue Sky. Una musica dolce suonava soltanto per me. Volare. I wrote the same thing. I said the pendulum certainly swung pretty far here from Elvis. I think this was a reaction. I don't know if this was a uh, a, a reaction from the record labels, the parents. Maybe every parent said we got to go out and buy this record to, to knock Elvis off the charts. The song is sung in Italian. There's yeah. <laughs> strings, there's piano, there's light drums. How was this the number? I, I'm just amazed at the uh, the diversity here in the 1950s from Spanish uh, or Cuban, excuse me, songs, uh, Latin songs to this Italian track, instrumentals. It, it's really all over the place. It is really all over the place. You cannot guess what's going to come next, except for that little two-year run that Elvis had. But Domenico Madungo, I, I mean... I thought this song was pretty cool. Maybe young people liked it. I think young people are who buys records, but maybe the parents liked it. I, I don't know. Maybe they were like, okay, that's enough of this Elvis. Domenico Badungo was an Italian singer, actor, and later in his life, a member of the Italian parliament. He received the Grammy Award for Record of the Year and Song of the Year for this. 
and he is considered the first Italian cantautor. Cantautor? I don't know. That's something the about word, singer, right? Yeah. Either way, the word is a combination of singer and writer. So he's considered the first singer-songwriter from Italy? I don't know how that could be possible. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very confused about that fact. Had but, you ever hey, heard of this song? You know, it sounded like vaguely familiar to me. Had yeah. you? No, I hadn't either. You know, I, yeah, we, we probably heard it walking through some restaurant when we were kids or something, or probably heard yeah. it last week and didn't realize what it was. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably heard it at the Olive Garden, yeah. jumping on a breadstick at some point. Yeah, <laughs> I heard it at Carabas actually, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, and Chris, we're at the end of the 50s now. It's 1959, and the biggest song, once again, talk about eclectic number ones. The number one song of the year was The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. didn't say a thing. We fired our guns and the British kept coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run him. On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Hickory said we could take him by surprise. If we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eye. We held our fire. Had you heard this one before? I had heard this one. How about you? Uh, once again, it was like familiar to me. Yeah, no, I, I do yeah. know this tune. And this was one of, let's see. Yeah, well, the two Elvis songs I put offensive. And this song, yeah, this song's offensive. Not, uh, you know, on, on, on first uh, appearance, but definitely, you know, I would call this a standard. I, I wrote it's not offensive, but there were elements, you know, it, it, this is like an anthem. And I'm sure people probably thought it was offensive. At the 128, uh, 1 minute and 28 seconds, the vocal gets pretty raucous here. And I wrote uh, in parentheses, drop kick burfies. I could see them covering this song. Yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them. On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. It's been covered by a lot of people, including Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, Sha Na Na, Les Claypool covered this song, Deep Purple, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and many more. Uh, the song, for anyone who doesn't know, is from the perspective of an American soldier, and it tells the tale of the battle of New Orleans, I guess, with a light tone and provides a comical version of what happened at the battle. Um, many members of the Western Writers of America, I don't know what that is, but I imagine it's w people who write Western music, but they chose it as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. And uh, Johnny Horton initially performed it as traditional country, but later performed it as a rockabilly song. That's funny. You should say that because it, it has like a little country tinge element to it. And yeah, I can hear Johnny Cash or, or Nitty Gritty Dirt Band covering this, but I cannot fathom what a sha -na, na cover this. We play, can, we, can we play a clip? In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we fought the bloody British near the town of New Orleans. Yeah, man, and I have to give credit. I don't know who this is, but Jimmy Driftwood wrote this song. It wasn't actually Johnny Horton. It wasn't Johnny Horton. It was Jimmy Driftwood. <laughs> These names sound made up, but um, but it's true. And we're a songwriting podcast, so we got to give props to the people who wrote the songs. Jimmy Driftwood, if you're listening, we give you full credit. <laughs> you know, I, I would venture to think that the 60s 
would almost parallel this a little bit. I imagine the the early 60s, you know, it'd be a little weird. Up around 65, 66, you start getting into the harder, you know, Beatles songs, Stones, The Who, uh, you know, a little later in the in the decade, Sabbath and some heavier stuff. But this, the 50s decade, I don't know if there's a weirder one for, for Billboard Radio. Yeah, it, it's definitely strange. I definitely learned a lot from this. Chris, the one thing I know about the 60s, the only thing I know is 1969, the number one song of the year was the Archie's Sugar Sugar. I know that from One Hit Thunder and <laughs> yeah. discussing it on, on the after party yeah. before. That's So that's, that's all I can say is from 1959, the biggest song was the Battle of New Orleans. 1969, it was Sugar Sugar, which, you know, is pop, but it's rock and roll. You know, it is rock and roll. Yeah. No, this was a, a, as we talked, said a couple times, it's a very, very eclectic list. I'm just, I was baffled by the, how many instrumentals there were. That was the big thing that stuck out. And then, you know, the uh, uh, the, the Italian uh, pendulum swinging in 1958, knocking Elvis out of the top position. I wonder if that's because of like a lot of Italian people in the United States really liking it. <laughs> I have no, I don't know. I've, I, I have no idea. But uh, this was fun taking a walk down non-memory lane, non- <laughs> down our grandparents' memory lane. Absolutely. Hey, we'll see you next week. Hey, I hope you all enjoyed that sneak preview episode of The After Party. I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but we really would appreciate it if you joined our supporting cast at ChrisToMakes.com. Your support helps us pay the bills and spend more time creating awesome shows. That's ChrisToMakes.com if you're interested. Thanks, everybody. Saturday night I got married Me and my wife settled down Now me and my wife are parted I'm gonna take another stroll downtown Irene, good night Irene, good night Good night, Irene, good night, Irene I'll see you in my dreams With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.